Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Jennifer Heiss is an expert in brain health and an associate professor at McMaster University in Canada, where she directs the NeuroFit Lab, which researches the effects of exercise for brain health. She received her PhD in cognitive neuroscience from McMaster and completed a postdoctoral fellowship in brain health and aging at the Rotman Research Institute at Baycrest Hospital in Toronto. Dr. Heiss's research examines the effects of physical activity on brain function to promote mental health and cognition in young adults, older adults, and individuals with Alzheimer's. Today, she's here to chat about her must-read book titled Move the Body, Heal the Mind, Overcome Anxiety, Depression, and Dementia, and Improve Focus, Creativity, and Sleep. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. I thought your book was fascinating. And like so many people in the health and well-being world, a book or a business starts with a personal story. So let's start with yours. Sure. Yeah. So the book, Move the Body, Heal the Mind, really captures, tracks my story, my personal journey in how I used exercise to heal my own mind. So well, it Back in graduate school, I was in my 20s and studying neuroscience. So I was doing my PhD, studying the fundamentals of neuroscience, like how does the brain represent who we are? And it became very clear to me that something was not quite right with my own brain. I was suffering from pretty severe anxiety. I went to the school doctor and I was really reluctant to take the the meds that they were offering. And so fortunately, a friend had recommended I try cycling and I borrowed their rusty old road bike. And much to my amazement, those bike rides soothed my mind. And it really sparked not just a shift in my personal life towards, you know, incorporating exercise every day, but also in my professional life. So I shifted my research to focus on the effects of exercise on the brain to promote mental health and cognition and well-being overall. It, look, you say this in the book, exercise is often easier said than done. Mm-hmm. So why is exercise so hard for so many? Yeah, well, the brain works against us here, actually. So the brain essentially makes us lazy. So we can think about when the brain evolved. It was at a time when we had to expend a lot of energy to find our food. And the brain has this built-in mechanism to make us sort of conserve energy when we don't need to expend it. And so flash forward to now, we don't really need to expend a lot of energy for survival. Like we can, you know, get in the car and go to the grocery store. That really doesn't take much energy. And so uh, the brain sees sort of voluntary exercise as an extravagant expense, and it really wants to go out of its way to prevent you from doing that. So It'll make all these arguments with you. Yeah, oh, I'm too, aren't you too tired to exercise right now? Do you even have time? <laughs> and it's, its arguments are relentless. So it's difficult to overcome this built-in barrier. And I mean, the reality is exercising is hard. It's a, it's a physical stressor that activates the body. And the body, the brain also wants to keep the body in home, its homeostatic happy place, so out of balance. And so we're working against these two 
inherent opposing forces against exercise, which makes it really hard for a lot of us. So how do we overcome it? You know, where mm -hmm. our brain's telling us, eh, you know, I just want to <laughs> watch a little, more, little bit more Netflix or, you know, I don't have the energy or <laughs> start procrastinating about God knows what. How do we overcome it? Well, we can use logic first off. So we can talk, you know, talk about making a plan, putting it in our calendar, sort of these simple steps to just at least have the time for it. And then you can do things to make it easier to overcome that biological inertia. So you can, you know, put your workout clothes in a bag by the door so that you just have to grab and go. You don't have to think, overthink what needs to be done. Have a plan. So these simple things at least just get you moving, right? They get you going. And then I think, you know, there are, there are some brain hacks we can do. So listening to music helps increase dopamine, which makes us feel good. And so if you if you throw on your favorite tunes just before you're going to work out, it can stimulate the reward system and start making that connection with movement and enjoyment. So you can start building that bridge. You know, so if, if somebody is new to exercise, they don't have that built in enjoyment with exercise yet. And so it just takes some time to build that up and you can couple it with things you like to do. So like listening to your favorite music doing the activities you really like to do with people you like. And it can kind of bootstrap that process. So you, you mentioned time. And I think about the biggest obstacles or objections to, to health and wellness. It, it's time and resources in terms of, of money. And so let's talk about time. Mm -hmm. Someone may say, I just don't have the time to exercise. In your research, what does the science say about mm -hmm. time? How much time do we really need to reap the benefits? You know, the book you talk about overcoming anxiety, depression, dementia, and then the bonuses of improved focus, creativity, and even sleep. And what I love about the book is n none of your exercises or workouts are that long. So let's talk mm -hmm. about time and what mm -hmm. we're getting wrong about time and how much time is just enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can go really low. So most of us are sitting most of the day these days, and this prolonged sitting starves the brain of oxygenated blood flow. And so every 30-minute, two-minute movement break is all it takes to restore and replenish the brain of its vital nutrients. So two minutes. Every 30, 30 minutes, get up. It doesn't have to be like a full-out, you know, jumping jacks or burpees, or it can be just a stretch, a walk around the block, some sort of movement to get the 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 body activated, the blood flowing. Five-minute exercise breaks we've shown in our research when students are sitting in a lecture, for example, but you could apply this to like a, a one-hour meeting or something. Halfway through, we had the students do five minutes of exercise. So this took the form of just, you know, jumping jacks, high knees, butt kicks, sort of on the higher intensity. And we compared that to at a break where they were just on their phones looking at social media versus no break. And the students that took the exercise break were able to stay focused on the lecture. They had less mind wandering and they were better able to remember that material later when they were tested so that they perform better. So that's just five minutes. Research shows that a 10 minute self-paced walk is enough to boost creativity. So it doesn't have to be a lot. 
And you can get these, you know, I think maybe that's the the big hurdle is we think we have to do a full on workout, you know, or like a 30 minute run when we're starting. And I, I, I think baby steps in the right direction is really what people should be aiming for. So you mentioned walking in the book, you talk about different ways to, to walk at the highest level. How can we walk more effectively <laughs> so we can reap some of those health benefits? Yeah. So there's really cool research from my lab that shows that interval walking, uh, and what does that mean? That means you're regularly walking and then every now and then you pick up the pace. So we did it every four minutes. You could do it every three minutes. You pick up the pace for three minutes. If you don't have a watch that you're bringing with you, you could do it between light posts or add some hills in your walking route. So essentially you're walking, you're doing your regular walk, but you're picking up the pace intermittently. So it's like a walking hit workout. And the benefit of this is that those high bursts of activity, they increase lactate. Lactate starts to accumulate in the muscles. It spills into the blood and moves to the brain. And I mean, a lot of people think about lactate or lactic acid as sort of this negative thing associated with burning muscles. But it turns out that lactate is one of the most powerful promoters of neuroplasticity it, it goes to the brain, goes to this region called the hippocampus, which is our main brain region for memories, and it boosts memory performance. It grows, helps grow new brain cells there. So in terms of pace, what is the right pace if we're looking to, to pick it up in terms of our heart rate? Is there something we should be shooting for or should we feel a little bit out of breath? Like walk us through. I think it's just so fascinating, the, the concept of high intensity interval walking. <laughs> so what, yeah. what does that look like? Yeah. So, I mean, you could use your heart rate monitor, but you could also do, this is the simplest thing, is the talk test. And so what is the talk test? So basically you want, when you're, when you can have a conversation easy, like you and I are having right now, and imagine we're walking, that would be something good for an easy pace. And now if we pick up the pace to the point where it's difficult for you and I to have a conversation, like maybe we're getting only a few words out, you know, the breathing is a little bit labored, the heart is up. That is where you want to be for these harder intervals. And so just sprinkling those into your walk has a profound effect on the, the brain health benefits that you can get. And I think that's less intimidating, right? Everyone likes walking. It's available for most people. It's the most common form. And even if you're just walking, let's say to the grocery store, you could include a few hills on your route or pick up the pace. It's as simple as I love that. And something in the book you talk about is this concept of just right, which I think is so important. And, and in the book you've got, you know, you talk about walking and burpees, sit-ups, push-ups, all sorts of exercises, which I love you don't need any equipment for. You could do in the mm -hmm. comfort of your home. You could do in the office. You could do, I was traveling this past week, you could do while waiting for your flight in an airport. Mm -hmm. And so how do we find that, as you call it, just right for us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think this is a really special part of the book is it's, it's a really, I tried to take a really compassionate approach to exercise where you know, this is a personal journey. And especially when it's mixed up with trying to heal the mind, it's so personal, right? And for a lot of people, there's a lot of fear and around movement or change. And I really wanted to make it really approachable, inclusive, 
And so, yeah, at the end of each chapter, I have these workouts that people can do that are, I really essentially synthesize the science into these workouts. So they have aerobic workouts and resistance workouts that are inspired by the science. And I don't think any book I've ever seen does that. So that's a really special thing. And it helps you get to this just right intensity. So the talk test can help. So when we reach that point, when it's difficult to have a conversation, I like to call that as like comfortably challenging. And this is where you want to be to really get the benefits of exercise. So like I said before, exercise is a physical stressor. And so we have to be careful. We can play with the intensity to just get that good stress. So if we go too light, we're not getting the good stress that we need to adapt and grow stronger, the change that we want. If we go too intense, then it gives us too much stress, stress overload, and that can start to weaken and damage the body. And so this just right intensity where it's comfortably challenging, so you're pushing yourself a little bit, but not too much. And that's really where we want to be to not only feel good while we exercise, feel even better afterwards, but also get the adaptive changes that happen in the stress response so that that will transfer into our lives so that we are better able to react and recover from all day stressors, not just from exercise. So you mentioned too intense, and I couldn't help but notice you've done some Ironmans. So... <laughs> How do you think about too much, too intense? Yeah. Yeah. So part of the book follows my journey from sort of sedentary scholar to Ironman finisher, which I never thought would ever be possible in my life. <laughs> I've never been an athlete. And so, yeah, lots of surprising, you know, things happened to my brain and I documented them in the book, which is really a fun part of it. But yeah. I would say, yeah, Ironman training is intense. And I certainly don't, I don't mean to say that you have to do that to get the brain health benefits, but it does show this when we do push ourselves hard. And now I worked with a coach through my training so that I titrated it. So not all my workouts were really hard. It was very balanced. But when we do those hard workouts, when we have enough fitness built up that we can tolerate higher intensity exercise, then there's something really magical happens when you lay it all out. You know, you push your body and mind beyond what you think is capable. And the resiliency it takes to do that is so hard, but then it gives it all back and then some. And so you grow not just physically stronger, but mentally stronger. And you start seeing all the possibilities. You know, it's a really magical. So that, that's an interesting point. You know, it is one way to think about it, taking part in something that is very intense and possibly pushing the body to a place that could be considered maybe unhealthy. Does the benefit of completing that unbelievably difficult task, race, exercise, and feeling that unbelievable sense of accomplishment, does that mental health benefit outweigh the potential maybe slight physical damage or like, is it more about the mental health benefit than possibly the 
slight damage it may be doing mm -hmm. physically. Yeah. So, well, let's, we'll say, you know, always check with your healthcare provider before doing something intense like that. But, and it requires training. And it's obviously, I worked with a coach, so it's best when it's supervised. But to your point, during that race, so the race took me 13 hours and 10 minutes straight to do in one day, which, you know, after cycling for six hours and six and a half hours, I was supposed to run a full marathon. <laughs> like the mental barrier of like even just thinking about that was it, it's more of a mental game than a physical game. And you're right that the my body was essentially broken down after that race. It wasn't it was it's not something that was physically healthy for me, but mentally the growth that I got from that was tremendous. And so, yeah, we can we can see the benefits um, of exercise on the mind. And sometimes they're there when we don't even have them on the body. And I think that this is an interesting shift in thinking about exercise. And one we saw during the pandemic. So at the beginning of the pandemic, my lab conducted research on 1,600 people. And we asked them, you know, how are you doing mentally and physically? And what we saw, you know, not surprisingly, stress was up, anxiety, depression were way up activity was down, people who were able to be active were faring better. But there was this shift in why people wanted to be active. So it wasn't to like physical features. It wasn't to look good or be strong. It was mental. They wanted to feel good. But then there was this, you know, this paradox where we found that people wanted to work out for their mental health, but their mental health was getting in the way. So they, they felt too stressed or anxious to do it and they lacked the motivation. So it, it kind of comes, you know, it's 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 an amazing thing to work out for your mental health and well-being, but it's also important to recognize that there are some unique barriers and we need to be very compassionate and patient with ourselves. The really nice thing about exercising for mental health is that you get the benefits right away. So after every single workout you do, the the brain is infused with all these neurochemicals that make you feel amazing. So you get a sense of clarity, creativity, focus, a boost in mood, a reduction in anxiety. And, and that, you don't have to wait, you know, months for your muscles to grow or months for the weight to come off. It happens right away. Let's talk about that a bit more. So anxiety, obviously, millions upon millions of people are suffering right now. And in the book, you talk about some specific exercise to help us manage anxiety. So can you walk us through some of those exercise and how mm -hmm. you think about exercise in relation to anxiety and uh, how we can maybe prescribe exercise for anxiety? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so anxiety is an interesting thing to prescribe exercise for because a lot of people who have anxiety also suffer from anxiety sensitivity, which is like essentially the fear of fear itself, the fear of those body sensations that you experience when you have anxiety. So like racing heart, difficulty breathing. And what happens is that those symptoms of anxiety are exactly the same symptoms or physical sensations you get from exercising. So people with anxiety sensitivity really don't like exercising and it, it scares them, especially vigorously. And so for them, we have to be a little bit, you know, 
nuanced in how we plan their programming. So, for example, one thing what we can do to start is a light to moderate exercise. Like it can be a 10 to 30 minute walk. And light exercise is really beneficial at building resiliency within the brain. It increases this factor called neuropeptide Y, which is essentially a resiliency factor. So people who have more neuropeptide Y, when they experience a traumatic event, for example, they're less likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. So it, it's a protective factor from the the damaging effects of stress. And we can build more of this neuropeptide Y with exercise. And it doesn't have to be intense. It can be light exercise. And so in the book, I talk about this fear buster workout where we we have this, we do this moderate, light to moderate walk to build up neuropeptide Y. And then we have people do a short sprint at the end. And what do I mean by short? I mean like seconds. And why do we do that? Because when people with anxiety sensitivity do intense bursts of exercise, it essentially acts like an exposure therapy. So they're getting used to feeling their heart race and difficulty breathing, but in this safe space where their brain is infused with resiliency and that it seems okay. And, but exposing the, themselves to these intense feelings and watching them come and watching them go and realizing they're safe is really therapeutic. Even just from a psycho, psychological perspective, this exposure, exposing themselves to these intense feelings will eventually habituate them to them and they'll have less control over them in the long run. So that's interesting. That could be as simple as um, I'm walking for three minutes. I pick up the pace for another two or three minutes then I slow down for three minutes and then a three to five second sprint. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so fascinating because everything we've read about high intensity interval training feels a lot more intense. Yeah. And I think that's been the, that's been the, the marketing on that is high intensity sounds scary. I mean, I work with a lot of older adults and if you say high intensity, they panic. <laughs> so this is why I market it to interval walking. <laughs> That's so much more easy to get around, you know, psychologically. <laughs> um, and this idea that you can just pick up the pace intermittently and you pick it up to the point where it's hard for you. And this comes back to that personal piece, right? It needs to be comfortably challenging for you. And that really depends on where you're starting and your current fitness level. If I go back to the why, you talk a lot about inflammation mm -hmm. and the role it plays in our brain health. And you use the metaphor, you talk, talk about death by a thousand cuts. Mm -hmm. So can you elaborate on what you mean by death by a thousand cuts? cuts in terms of inflammation in our brain health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I think about the effects of everyday stress on our life, I think about death by a million cuts. Or, and it's this idea that, you know, we don't, it's these minor everyday stressors that are really wreaking havoc on our health. And so it's not the stressors themselves, but it's our reaction to it. So when we get angry or tense or frustrated by things that don't go right, that creates like an, a, a tension within the body that starts to damage the cells of the body. 
And then the immune system can't recognize those cells. They become damaged cells. And so the immune system launches an attack as if it's a foreign invader, like a virus or a bacteria. But it's your own cells. They're just stressed out and damaged. But this creates inflammation in the body. That inflammation goes to the brain. It starts to interact with regions of the brain that regulate stress response and mood. And so what happens is that inflammation, when it gets to the brain, it can start to cause depression. And so people who have high levels of inflammation in their bodies often are the same people who have drug-resistant depression. So they don't respond to antidepressant drugs. They'll take them, but they won't feel any relief in their mood. And why? Because the drugs target a specific cause of depression, which is lack of serotonin in the forebrain. And so when the drugs, when, the, when somebody has low serotonin that's causing their depression, the drugs work. But when they don't, when it's related to inflammation, which then comes back to our reaction to everyday stressors, then they don't work as effectively. And so for these individuals in particular, exercise is the medicine they need. And research studies show that people with high inflammation that are drug resistant to antidepressants respond so well to exercise. It has a clinically significant effect on reducing their depression. And so it's the medicine that they need. But that said, even people who are responding to meds uh, they can benefit too by reducing using exercise to reduce the side effects they're getting from the medication, but also it can reduce the dosage that they need to take. And so I think exercise is a medicine that we all need, really. What percentage of people who are prescribed medication for depression do you think have an inflammation problem versus a serotonin problem because that's kind of look meds save lives but mm -hmm. i think it's also clear that we're over medicated yeah and so um, how do you think about that yeah well the research shows that one in three people don't respond to antidepressant drugs one in three that's a lot that is um, a lot so yeah and that was studies that were done before the pandemic. And, and because we saw an uptick in cases since the depression or since the pandemic onset, I would guess that number might be higher now. And, and because the pandemic and, and the stress of the world was really the, the driver of that, in people who had never had a diagnosis before, right, we were seeing this effect of the stress of everyday uncertainty in life really having a big impact on people's physical and mental well-being. And when it's linked to things like everyday stressor, it has to be, it has to be linked to inflammation. There, there has to be a component of inflammation in there. And so, yeah, I think it's a lot. I think we're talking about a lot of people, especially people with mild to moderate levels of depression, which are, that covers a lot of people. So instead of you know, having antidepressants be the first line of defense, I think there needs to be a more fulsome discussion about how lifestyle factors, including exercise, but other things like mindfulness and CBT can be extremely beneficial for helping people feel better. Well, it's such an important point. If we were looking at one in three pre-pandemic and if we're 
making the connection between everyday stressors and boy, there are a lot of everyday stressors mm -hmm. linking to inflammation and depression. Uh, one would think that one in three number is now significantly higher. So then mm -hmm. we're medicating millions of people who aren't responding to medication and then yeah. there are side effects and so forth. So it seems like it's worrisome. Well, and it's really worrisome because if you have depression, like, and you're not responding to meds, that's a really hopeless situation, right? Like you finally, you're to the point where you're not feeling well enough to go see a doctor. You get the drugs, which you're maybe reluctant to take, you take them and it doesn't work. And you're left feeling just this incredible hopelessness. And I think that obviously that's not good. And we need to get ahead of that so that people have more tools in their toolbox. And I, like, I, it's difficult because exercising is difficult when you're not mentally well. And so I really, that was one point in the book I really wanted to make that it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be intense. It can be little by little. And as you move more, you know, the brain reinforces the behavior and it becomes easier and easier as you go. Well, especially for so many people who are depressed, they can't get out of bed. I know. You know, they're, they're sleeping, they're lying on the couch, they can't get out of bed. And, and for anyone who's been there, it's, it's, it's a dark place. It's tough to get out of. And then you're saying part of the prescription is, all right, you got to move your body yeah. and, and it goes back to the easier said than done. But yeah. you do have a lot of great baby steps in the book. And so something else that I think is very concerning to many right now of all ages is cognitive decline. Yeah. Dementia, Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. How do we keep our brain young? Well, exercise is the greatest lifestyle factor to prevent the risk of dementia, which is amazing. Unfortunately, dementia, you know, there's no drug that cures Alzheimer's disease. And this has a lot of people afraid, you know, at, once we hit around 30, you know, we start to notice our declining faculties and that can be concerning, especially for high level people who really, you know, use their mind for their work, for their life. It really represents who we are, you know, and so it can be really scary, but exercise is so beneficial because dementia, what many people may not realize is. Yes, it's a brain disease that that targets the hippocampus, but it's so intimately related to the health of the body. So things like diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure all increase your risk of dementia. And so just from that point alone, moving the body helps keep dementia at bay. And so in the book, I talk about sedentary, being sedentary increases our risk of dementia. And so these short exercise movement breaks, every 30 minutes, a two-minute movement break is enough to help, you know, as a starting point. And then incorporating more activity into your life. And I mean, it's never too late to start, but the research shows that midlife uh, is a really key time when we need to maintain our fitness level because fitness level in midlife is a strong predictor of dementia risk later in life. So this is something we have to think about now, not, you know, at retirement. It's something we need to think about now. And all it takes is sit for 30 minutes, get up, walk around for two, take some stairs, maybe do a jumping jack, just do something. 
Yeah. And the research I talked about before with lactate, this is really, I think, a special, a special component of protecting the brain. So promoting new newborn cells in the hippocampus, promoting neuroplasticity, promoting memory, preventing dementia. It 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 is that 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 special thing you get from picking up the pace that really helps boost brain health. And so you mentioned cells. You talk about neurogenesis. Mm-hmm. Can, can you summarize what neurogenesis is and, and what science had gotten so wrong about it? <laughs> So neurogenesis is the birth of newborn brain cells. And for a long time, scientists thought that was not possible in the adult brain. Basically, the idea was that, you know, you're born with the brain through development. Maybe there's some growth. But basically, after the earliest stages of development, the brain's fixed. You've got what you got and, you know, deal with it. (laughs) But it turns out that's not true that the brain can produce newborn brain cells within the hippocampus, which is that memory center. And it does so throughout the whole life, like even into old age, which is amazing. So we have this potential for plasticity and change and growth that is in the brain. And we can optimize that growth and potential with exercise. So exercise is the greatest stimulator of neurogenesis, which is an amazing thing to think about. And so when we work, we, when we do our interval walking, we promote neurogenesis and it keeps our brain healthy and young. So again, it comes back to just our interval walking is, yeah. is something we can do to grow brain cells. Amazing, right? <laughs> I know. I, I love the simplicity of it. Kids, how should we think about kids? I have a five-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. How should we think about kids oh, and exercise? Yeah. And walk us through some of the fascinating studies on children and the benefits. Yeah, I have a 10-year-old, so I'm, I'm past that like early stage, but so fun, so fun. And the benefits of exercise for kids are profound, not just in their motor development, you know, their movement skills, but also in their mental health. And we often don't think about kids having mental health issues, but they do. And they can be really dire. And so sleep is a big one for kids, right? So if kids are not sleeping well or sleeping enough, then this can really wreak havoc on their ability to perform well in school. It can really, you know, damage their mood. And so this is a real important factor. So when we move more, when kids move more during the day, they sleep better at night and they perform better. They can think better at school. They feel better. And so really, uh, there's this cool study that I talk about in the book where this high school had their teens get up at 7 a.m. I know teens don't like getting up, right? So they got up at 7 a.m. And I couldn't believe the compliance in this this study. But they got up 7 a.m. And over the weeks of this exercise program, they reported feeling better, sleeping better, being less anxious, less moody, overall feeling just better about themselves. And that so this this idea that we can use exercise to not only enhance our brain as we age, but also to optimize it as we're growing, you know, growing up. And another really great thing about exercise in kids is that it helps prevent kids from experimenting with drugs. So exercise increases dopamine in the brain, which stimulates the reward pathway. And the reward, the brain likes the brain is curious. It needs to be stimulated. It needs to explore the environment. 
And so exercise helps to give it that, you know, boost of exploration and fun in dopamine. And it can help prevent kids from experimenting with drugs. So all drugs of abuse increase dopamine, but to supernatural levels. And so when kids are understimulated, they may, they may experiment with drugs to get that boost, but exercise helps prevent that. Another thing I talk about in the last chapter around focus and creativity is this idea of letting kids play, you know, and letting them make errors and fail and get back up again and try again. And, and the idea that, you know, we need to let kids, you know, structured sports are good, yes, because they help build skill. But kids need free time to play and experiment because that is what builds the brain's ability to be creative and innovative, not just in sport, but in life. And I think especially nowadays, I know with my daughter you know, and her friends, it, it's so tempting to just, you know, helicopter parent or over, you know, over parent them. And we just need to like let go of the reins a little bit and just let them have their space to, to grow and experiment and be kids. And so in terms of free play, exercise or sport, how much is satisfactory? Yeah. So when one study looked at, it compared kids who who did 70% structured sports versus 30% free play throughout the week versus kids that spent half their time in structured and half in free. And it was, and then they followed them up to when they're adults. And the ones who spent half and half in structured and free play were the most creative adults. They were most innovative thinkers. And so I think that's a really powerful message, right? Is that, you know, and it makes sense, you know, when you play, you're, you have to think creatively about the next step. You know, it, the instructions aren't just laid out for you, which they tend to be sometimes in structured sports, right? Here's the play, execute the play, you know. And so following instructions, yeah, that's important. But thinking creatively on your feet is a whole another skill that they need to flex. It, it makes me think of how sports are different. And are there certain sports that are potentially better. I played basketball in college. Mm-hmm. So I, I think basketball is very different from football, for example, where football, you start, you stop, where basketball is free flowing. Mm-hmm. What's your take on sport? And are yeah. there certain sports that are a little bit better? Well, you'll be happy to hear that net sports like basketball is one of the most creative producers. <laughs> So when they compare across all sports, the ones that come up at the top are net and combat. So this idea that, you know, you have an opponent, things are fast and dynamic, you have to improvise, you have to come up with new plays on the fly. This creates a a more flexible brain. So in the book, I talk about the prefrontal cortex, which is like the CEO of the brain, it coordinates all activities. And the prefrontal cortex has these two modes. So one mode is focus and inhibit distraction. And the other mode is flexibly create and think, you know, this uh, dynamic thinking. And so we need to be flexing both and net and combat sports allow us to like flexibly switch between the two. Like you need to stay focused, but you also need to be flexible enough to respond to the opponent. Whereas sports like you know, artistic sports like gymnastics, it's like they're following a very prescribed 
set of instructions and moves. You know, there's no opponent. There's no improv. In fact, you don't want to improvise. You need to stay focused and inhibit any distraction. And so it produces a very different person, like a very focused, very structured person. And so it's, it's interesting to think about that when raising our children, right? No, it's fascinating. I think of track, swimming, baseball, football, track and swimming specifically, very focused. I think mm-hmm. of basketball, volleyball, tennis. Yeah. It's interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. Sleep. Sleep is so critical. Yeah. Seems like we're all struggling with sleep. You talk <laughs> about exercise can help us sleep. So, what specifically? about exercise can help us and are there specific and again I, I know we're all individuals and we differ here but are there specific exercise that, that can help us sleep better yeah so sleep i mean it's it is it can be a nightly struggle for some i'm certainly finding it struggle as i get older especially but the, the bottom line with exercise is the more you move during the day the better you sleep at night and the reason why is because exercise burns ATP. So it uses up cellular energy called ATP. And the byproduct of that is adenosine. The brain has an adenosine sensor. And when adenosine gets too high, it triggers sleep. And so this is one way that just helps you sleep more deeply, more soundly at night. Another way you can use exercise is by timing your exercise. So you can, if you exercise consistently at the same time every day, it essentially it acts like like a chronomarker. They call it a Zeitgerber, but it's, it acts like the sun. So it helps to reset your brain's clock so it's in line with real time. And this helps. So you could do it either consistently. If you're finding, you can even like exercise right for your chronotype. So if you tend to be like a, someone who stays up late, or gets up early and you want to shift that, you can exercise. So let's say you you're, you want to wake up earlier, then the research shows you want to exercise either first thing in the morning or in the early afternoon. If you want to start staying up later at night, then you should be exercising more in the evening. And so you can play around and titrate the timing of your exercise to resync your brain time with real time. Because for a lot of us, what happens is that gets out of sync for several reasons. One, probably for most of us, is we have this blue light that is really messing up, like from the computer screen, from the, the, the phones, that's really messing up with our circadian rhythms. And so we need to reset that time, and exercise can help do that. And how much of it comes down to listening to your body? You know, I mm-hmm. like working out around this time. Yeah. You know, I may hate the morning. I like the evening. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to what will you do consistently for the rest of your life? (laughs) And you want to do something you enjoy and you'll stick with, right? And so if at the end of the day, it's you like to work out early afternoon, it's easiest for you to fit it in your schedule, that's what you should be doing. So consistency is really key. So I do talk about how you can kind of tweak and hack exercise to get the maximum brain health benefits in my book. But honestly, at the end of the day, I really want people to just keep moving. So let's go there. Give us a, a sneak peek of what are some of those hacks so we, in terms of making our exercise work better for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, like I said, with anxiety, it's incorporating those quick bursts. 
with depression, motivation can be hard. So listening to music before you go work out. Another another trick is this swish and and swish and spit for lack of a better term. So basically there's some research showing that if you take a swish of a sugary drink in your mouth, then it helps it, it's easier for you to be active. The exercise feels less effortful. And the idea is it convinces the lazy brain that resources are plenty. But the trick is you don't actually have to drink it. So you could just swish it around in your mouth and that's enough. But it has to be real yeah. sugar. Mm -hmm. Of all the research, whether it's in your lab or research you came across while writing the book, what was the most fascinating? Well, I think it, it always comes back to me that exercise is it's on par with antidepressant drugs. Like this is, to me, was the most amazing. So when studies compare antidepressants versus exercise, it's technically a tie. And so I don't think the general public knows that, you know, and we need to get that message out. And so for me, that was, that's, that was a pretty powerful finding. The studies we've done in my lab show that exercise can prevent depression and anxiety from occurring even during the most stressful time. So it's this really protective buffering effect as a preventative, not just for cognitive decline, but for our ability to cope with everyday stressors. Amen. Jennifer, thank you so much. Thank you. 